Amen. If you uh, have your copy of God's Word, I pray that you do. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to look at the sixth of seven letters that Christ wrote to these churches in what was referred to as Asia Minor, or what we refer to as Asia Minor, what is modern-day Western Turkey. Uh, Real cities populated by real people, real churches, Uh, dealing with real issues that uh, you and I, in some cases, even deal with and work through today. Uh, This morning, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, and Christ's letter to the church at the city in Philadelphia, all right? If you uh, do not have a copy of God's God's Word, you're welcome to use the Bible that's in the pew rack there in front of you, and you'll find the passage of Scripture on page 1,000. Uh, beginning on page 1057, all right? And so we encourage you to follow along there if you would like. Uh, Let's read this passage together, and then we'll jump in uh, to the text. Jesus says, Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works, Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you, have, but you ha- because you have but little power. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this. I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure... I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this day you've given us. Thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together as the body of Christ and to sing your praises, to fellowship and encourage one another, and to study your word together. Please give us all eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord God, work in us and through us in ways that only you can. Uh, Lord God, may we be faithful Uh, to listen and to heed and to obey your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. And so here's what we're going to do. Like I mentioned, we're going to follow the same outline for this letter, for this church that we have in the previous. And so we're going to start with this, the Lord's approval of the church uh, in Philadelphia, all right? So look with me beginning in verse 7, because here's what we find. We find how Jesus introduces himself here. And in each of the previous letters, if you'll remember, Jesus introduced himself with a description um, that reflects his nature, his character, his work, his attributes. And in the previous five letters, uh, those descriptions came from John's vision of Christ in chapter 1, all right? But there's a transition here. In this particular letter, uh, Jesus doesn't draw from that description we find in chapter 1. Instead, He draws from language that was very specific to the Old Testament and very specific to God the Father. Unique descriptions 
that we use to describe God the Father. And so here's what we read in verse 7. Jesus is holy, true, and sovereign. Okay, adjectives reminding us and emphasizing to us that Jesus is God, all right? Now remember, in the Old Testament, those adjectives were used exclusively for God the Father. As a matter of fact, if, if, if you were going to use any of those adjectives for anyone or anything else, it would have been considered blasphemous, okay? Because it would, it would have been interpreted in the sense that you are equating that someone or that thing with God the Father. And yet, we see in the New Testament, we see this transition, okay? And we see these same descriptions, these same adjectives being used of Jesus, again, reminding and emphasizing to us his deity. And here's the first thing we see. Jesus is the Holy One. That word holy means sacred or pure or blameless, separate and distinct, unlike any other. Uh, one, one theologian referenced that the word holy kind of is a two-part definition. In other words, it implies all that is right and all that is good and all that is pure. At the same time, though, it implies that there is nothing impure or nothing uh, ungodly associated. And, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, let me just let's look back at, at how this word has been used in the Old Testament, and then we'll kind of jump forward, because I, I just want you to really make sure you understand this. Read with me here from Psalm 99, verses 1 through 5, and we see uh, some praise given to the Lord in His nature and His character. Here's what we read. The Lord reigns, or Yahweh reigns, the one true God reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awe-inspiring name. He is holy. The mighty king loves justice. You have established fairness. You have administered justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Bow in worship at his footstool. He is holy. Language, again, unique to the Father, to God the Father, to the one true God. And then in Isaiah 6 and verse 3, uh, Isaiah was given this wonderful privilege of seeing the Lord seated on his throne. And then he writes what he sees, and look what he writes here. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. And so these are adjectives that were very unique to Almighty God. And nobody would have dismissed this. Nobody would have argued this. But then we see a transition happen, a very interesting transition. Look with me in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 33. This is a phenomenal uh, scene that takes place here. And read this with me. In the synagogue, there was a man with an unclean demonic spirit who cried out with a loud voice, Leave us alone. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. Now listen closely. The Holy One of God. Now I want you to try to get a picture of this as best as we can. There in this particular synagogue... 
There is a man who has come to worship who is possessed by a demon. And Christ is there with him. And the demon begins to speak. And he recognizes Jesus of Nazareth. And he calls him the Holy One of God. Now, everybody in that audience, everybody within earshot of that uh, demonic spirit would have raised their eyebrows. It would have gotten their attention because the Holy One of God would have been reserved for God the Father, for Yahweh alone. And for this demonic spirit to give this name and this description to Jesus of Nazareth would have blown their heads. Now, let me remind you of something. This demonic spirit at one point was an angel of God who resided in the halls of heaven and who knows Jesus from eternity past. But unfortunately, he sided with Lucifer in rebellion against God and was expelled from heaven. And now all of a sudden, he encounters this Jesus that he's known from eternity past again, and he calls him by name the Holy One of God. And all of a sudden, listen, the phones would have been ringing. The text would have been sent. The Snapchats would have gone out. Guys, you're not going to believe what happened in the synagogue today. <laughs> a demon called this Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, the son of, of Joseph and Mary, that carpenter guy from little bitty Nazareth, a nobody town, a nothing town, a dead-end town. He called him the Holy One of God. Can you believe this? And there, the wheels would have started spinning. Let's keep going a little bit further. In John chapter 6, beginning in verse 67, we read this. That many, many of those professing disciples or followers of Christ have left. He began teaching some difficult truth, and, and they didn't really like what they were hearing. And they said, you know what, we're, we're going to kind of bug out of this. And so watch what Jesus says. So Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know, watch this, that you are the Holy One of God. Now, Peter was a Jew, and the, the other apostles were Jewish, and they understood the background of, of the holiness and the, the righteousness of God and the sacredness of God. That would not have been any surprise to any of us. But notice what he says here. We have come to believe and to know. And so over the course of this time that they've been with Jesus and they've listened to him teach and they've, they've observed him and they've watched him do miracles and they've, they, they've paid close attention to him, they come to this realization. This is indeed the Holy One of God. This, this is God's promised Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. And for you and I today, we need to be reminded of this truth, that Jesus is fully and completely separate from sin. His character is absolutely unblemished and faultless, that he is holy in his words and in his actions and in his purposes. Jesus Christ is the Holy One. He is God. And just stop and let that marinate for a minute that the Holy One of God came to this earth and He veiled Himself in human flesh for one purpose, to die 
on a cross to pay the penalty of your sin and my sin, to rescue us from darkness, to redeem us from lostness, to adopt us into his family, and to make us a kingdom and a priest for his glory and for his honor. (laughs) The Holy One of God. Let's keep going. But also Jesus is the true one. The word true there means genuine and authentic, truthful. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20, the apostle John writes these words. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And in John 14 and verse 6, Jesus said this, you're familiar, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Church, you and I can rest on this truth. We, we, can, we, we can die on this truth. Are you ready? That Jesus Christ is the true one, that he is the authentic God. In the midst of a world where there are thousands and even millions of false gods, Jesus Christ is the one true God. And we can plant our stake there and never walk away from that. But not only that, in the midst of the perversion and the error and the falsehood that fills this world, Jesus is truth. He is truth. And then he goes on to say, not only am I the Holy One, not only am I the true one, I'm also the one who has the key of David. Well, what on earth does the key of David, what does that mean? Well, here's the background. And it comes out of Isaiah chapter 22. There's a gentleman by the name of Shebna. You and I in the English spell it S-H-E-B-N-A. Shebna was a leader in Israel. But Shebna was a very ungodly, a very unfaithful man whom the Lord decided he would remove from office. And in his place, he would raise up a gentleman by the name of Eliakim. Eliakim was a godly man. He was a faithful man. Uh, We come to understand Eliakim as as a type of Christ, a foreshadowing of the ministry of Christ. And here's what we read in Isaiah chapter 22. Um, God is speaking to Shebna, and listen carefully to what he says to him. On that day, I will call for my servant, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and tie your sash around him. I will hand your authority over to him, and he will be like a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Now listen to this language. I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. Does that sound familiar? In Scripture, a key represents authority and access. In other words, whoever holds the key has control. Remember when Revelation 1 and verse 18, we read that Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades. Well, in this context, in this passage here, we, we, are, we see Jesus holding the keys to salvation, blessing, and eternal life. But then he goes a step further, not only to say that he holds the key to salvation, blessing, and eternal life, but he is sovereign over these things. Notice what he says there who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one will open. In other words, no one can shut the doors to his kingdom, and no one can open the doors to his kingdom. 
Those are rights and responsibilities that belong to Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. And so he has complete and sovereign control over salvation and blessing and eternal life. And he goes a step further in verse 8, like he does in the previous letters, and he says to this church, I know your works. I have a full and complete knowledge and understanding of your works. There's nothing hidden that I'm unaware of. And he says, look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. This is a good reminder for all of us this morning. Are you ready? Jesus Christ is the one who will open doors and opportunities for ministry. It is Jesus Christ who will open a door for us to share the gospel, to minister, to serve, to meet the needs of others. Christ opens the door for ministry, and you and I need to be faithful to walk through those open doors, to look for those opportunities that God gives us. Now, it appears from this text that there were at least two obstacles this church faced to walking through those open doors that Christ had provided. The first we see in verse 8 there is you have but little power. Uh, Apparently, this was a small church numerically. Apparently, they didn't have a lot of resources like some other churches. However, what we read, though, is that they were faithful to keep Christ's word. They were faithful not to deny the name of of Christ. In other words, they were faithful to Christ and they were faithful to the gospel. Let us all be reminded of this principle. Are you ready? It is never the size of the church that determines its effectiveness. I, I know large churches that are doing very little for the cause of Christ, and I know small churches that are doing great things for the cause of Christ. The effectiveness of any church is their commitment to Christ and to the gospel. And if any church, if our church, will stay faithful to Christ and to the gospel, listen, he will open doors for us to serve as his missionaries and his ambassadors. He will open doors for ministry. Like like Paul said to the church at Ephesus, he will do more than we can ask or imagine in us and through us if you and I remain faithful to Christ and to the gospel, like we read there in verse 8. Let me just encourage you in this and remind you of this. In in the past 12 months, I want you to listen, just just pay attention to the doors that God's opened for this ministry. He's opened a door for us to minister the gospel and to serve our brothers and sisters in Portland, Maine. He's opened a door for us to minister in Vancouver, British Columbia. He has opened a door for us to minister in Peru. He has opened a door for us to, 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 to rebirth our ministry in Zambia, if you will. He's opening a door for us to go to the Netherlands next year. He's opened a door for us to go to Clarkston and minister with the International Bible Church. He's opened for us a, a ministry, a, a, a door with Chosen for Life and their care portal they're getting ready to launch in, in, in Clark and Oconee County. God is opening some doors in amazing ways for us. And here's what I would say to you. Buckle up because he's going to continue to do the same thing over the next 12 months. He's going to open doors for us that, that, that today we're not even aware of. But he's going to do that. In just a few minutes, you're going to see college students standing up here 
whom God has opened a door for them to literally take the gospel all over the world this summer. They're giving up a portion or all of their summer to minister the gospel throughout the southeastern United States, throughout Vancouver and Toronto and Southeast Asia and Zambia and other places. And and folks, listen, if you've ever wondered what the seeds of revival look like, that's what it'll look like in just a few minutes. That's what revival looks like. When we're willing to give up our wants and our desires and our pleasures for the cause of Christ, that's the beginning of 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 revival. It's an open door that God's given us. Let's keep going. So the first obstacle was their size, okay? The second was the local Jewish population. Look what we read there in verse 9. I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying, I'll make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Now here's what's so interesting. We see very similar language in, in Christ's letter to the church at Smyrna in chapter 2 and verse 9. These unbelieving Jews were, were, were creating extreme difficulty for, the, for, for these Christians. They, they, they were having great persecution against these Christians. And what does Christ say to them? Just hold on. Just trust me in this, all right? Jesus promises these believers that those who are making their lives difficult would one day acknowledge that these Christians are loved by God and known by God. Look at what he says here. He says, and they will know that I have loved you. Now, why is that significant? Because in the mind of the Orthodox Jew, remember this, in the mind of the Orthodox Jew, they're God's chosen people. They're the only people that can know God in a personal way. They're the only people that can experience the riches and the blessings of God. And that's the way they viewed this. And so, for God to say that these Christians, that this, this new faith would be loved by Him, again, it would have blown their mind. They would have been amazed at it. This, this is a major paradigm shift for the Jewish heart and soul. And Jesus says, there's coming a day that they will acknowledge that I love you and that I know you and that I have a relationship with you. Now go look with me at verse 10. He gives them further encouragement. He says, because you have kept my command to endure, to remain faithful, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. And so Jesus promises that the church will be kept from this hour of testing. Well, what, what is the hour of testing? The hour of testing is the tribulation. It's chapter 6 through 19, and we see in detail God's wrath against sin and unbelief. And he promises that the church will be kept from that. Now, this is most commonly referred to as the rapture of the church. There, there are three primary views of the rapture of Christ's church. Let me just share those with you. There, there's one view that argues that the rapture will occur at the end of the tribulation, just prior to the return of Christ. There's a second view that says the rapture will occur in the middle of the tribulation. And then there's a third view that says the rapture will occur prior to the tribulation, prior to God's wrath being poured out on sin and unbelief. Now, 
alone, this text supports the pre-tribulation view that, that Christ will keep his church from the tribulation. Now, here's what we're going to do, all right? We're going to take next week and we're going to dive into this whole idea of the rapture of the church in detail. And we're going to look at this text and we're going to look at many others and try to get, get a firm understanding of what God's word has to say on this matter, all right? And so, uh, maybe I've whet your appetite a little bit. Just hang on, and next week we'll dive into it uh, in, in much more detail, all right? Here, here's what I want you to walk away from this morning, um, from verses 7 through 10. Look with me in your notes. Christ, who is holy, true, and sovereign, will do great things in the church and through the church, that remains true to him and to the gospel. You and I can bank on that truth, and we see it in the text here, all right? Next, following the same outline we've been looking at, the Lord's accusation against the church in Philadelphia. Are you ready for this? There isn't one. Christ doesn't have anything critical to say about this church. He doesn't have anything negative to say about this church. Now, here's what's interesting. Last week, he didn't have anything good to say about the church at Sardis. This week, he doesn't have anything bad to say about the church of Philadelphia. This, this is a good church. This is a healthy church. This is a church that loves Christ and the gospel and serving and ministry and missions and evangelism. This is a good church. Let's keep going. Look with me at verse 11. I want you to see the Lord's admonition to the church at Philadelphia. He says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Uh, Jesus promises that he is returning quickly. Now, this language uh, refers to the certainty of his coming, not the timing of his coming, all right? The language points uh, to, the, to the imminency of his return, okay? And he is coming. Remember, he is coming to judge sin and unbelief, and he is coming as a conquering king, um, it could happen at any moment. In Revelation 1, verse 1, we, we, we looked at this in detail in the beginning of our study. We read, The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Again, it's not a reference so much to the timing as it is the certainty. In Revelation 22, on three occasions, in just a handful of verses, listen to what Jesus says. In Revelation 22, in verse 7, he says this, Look, I am coming soon. And in verse 12, he says, Look, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me. And then in verse 20, he says, Yes, I am coming soon. And so for you and I, we need to be reminded and we need to be encouraged by this, that Jesus Christ can come at any moment, that his return is imminent, and we need to be ready for his return. And then he admonishes, he challenges the church here to hold on to what you have. The church of Philadelphia had been faithful, and they had been loyal to Christ and to the gospel. And Jesus encourages them to remain so, and he promises that their crown of life is secure. Now, we saw this language in the church, in his letter to the church at Smyrna in chapter 2 and verse 10, and we read this, um, be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the 
crown of life, a crown that symbolizes eternal life. And so there is eternal life for those who are faithful to endure. And you and I have been promised all of the spiritual blessings in Christ, Ephesians chapter 1. And so in Christ, we've been promised all of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places through faith in Christ. That is our eternal hope and our eternal reward or crown, uh, if you will. All right? And so here's what I want you to walk away from from verse 11. Look with me in your notes. Christ is returning soon, and the church must remain faithful to him and endure to the end for his glory and his honor. Let's be faithful, church, to Christ and to the gospel like this church in Philadelphia was faithful. Let's endure until the end. Now, look with me at verse 12 and 13. As we conclude, Jesus again transitions to speak to the individual Christian. He says, the one who conquers. Now, who is the one who conquers from 1 John chapter 5? It is the one who has surrendered in faith to Jesus Christ. And so he says to the to those who know Christ as Lord and Savior. Now watch these promises. He says, number one, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Well, what, is, what does that mean? What is the imagery that, that he's trying to get us to understand there? I want you to think of this. Think of a skyscraper, okay? 15-story building, a 50-story building, a 100-story, but it doesn't matter. Think of a skyscraper. What's holding those buildings up? You and I can't see it, but underneath the surface of the ground, those buildings are being supported by massive concrete pillars that are bored into the ground as far down as they have to go to find bedrock. And those concrete pillars are reinforced with steel, and they're holding this massive building up. Otherwise, it would sink or fall, right? The pillar is a symbol of permanence, of stability, of, uh, 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 of structure, of security, of immovability. And so God says, I will make you a pillar in my temple. In other words, this is a permanent place for you. This is a stable place for you. This is a secure place for you. This is an immovable place for you. In other words, when we enter into his presence, we, we are eternally secure in that place. We can't be moved. Let's keep going though. He goes on to say, and he will, and he will write on him the name of my God. This imagery depicts ownership, and it reminds us all, reminds all Christians that we belong to God and that we have an intimate relationship with him. He is our God, and we are his children. Well, then he, Christ goes on to say again, I will write on him the name of the city of my God. In other words, this is your place of residence. This is where your citizenship belongs. And we see that in chapter 21, this new city, Jerusalem, the eternal resting place of God's children. It's similar. The imagery is similar to, to a passport. I have a United States passport. And that, that document, if you will tells all the world where my citizenship is, okay, where I belong. Well, folks, there's coming a day 
when Jesus will stamp the new city Jerusalem on our passport because that's where we belong. Let me remind you this morning, church, the Bible says you and I are sojourners. We are pilgrims in this weary land, that this world is not our home. We are just passing through, that our citizenship is in heaven. That is where we belong. And we're reminded of that truth here in, verses, in verse 12. But then he goes even a step further and says, I will write on him my new name. Christ's name represents the totality of his person, the entirety of his nature, his character, and his attributes. L li listen to me, church. <laughs> John wrote for us in 1 John 3 that there is coming a day, are you ready for this, when we will see Jesus like he is. Everything we know about Christ in this life will pale in comparison to when we enter into his presence and we see him in all of his glory and all of his majesty and all of his honor, uh, honor and all of his wonder. You and I will see Jesus for all in the entirety of who he is. And church, I, I want to just remind you this. That is the longing. Or it ought to be the longing of every Christian's heart is to, 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 to walk into his presence and to see him for who he is in all of his glory and his majesty. That, that's what God is preparing us for. He is molding us and shaping us and fashioning us so that when we, when we, when we walk into that presence and we see him for all, of he is, all that he is and we'll stand in wonder and awe at the glory of Christ and the majesty of Christ. So here's what I want you to walk away from this morning. Look with me there in your notes. Like he's done in each of the previous five letters, he uses the conclusion to remind us of these truths. Christ promises his children eternal security, eternal safety, and eternal glory in his presence. You and I have a hope and a longing to spend all of eternity in the presence of our Savior, the one who died for us, who rose from the dead to guarantee us eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the privilege we have to study your word, and Lord, to dive into its truth. And Lord, I just pray that you continue to, to just use your word to mold us and shape us and fashion us into the men and women you've created us to be, the men and women you have gifted us to be, the men and women you've redeemed us to be as your children, as your ambassadors to the nations. Father God, if there is any individual in this room who's never placed their faith and trust in you, I pray that today would be the day they surrender in faith to Jesus Christ. That today would be the day, Lord, where you show them their sin and their need of a Savior and you bring them to the saving knowledge of Christ. Father God, work in their life in ways that only you can for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.